Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. We have recently launched on patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash lima. This is a place where if you go pledge to us at various levels, such as 1, 5, 10, or 20, you can get thank you gifts in return. And thank you to listener Daniel for being a patron. We get to thank all of you for listening, for sending in your feedback, and we present to you this new way of allowing us to create custom content for you. The main advantage of Patreon for you folks is going to be that at various levels, you will be able to give us direct input as to what kind of programming you want to hear. And on the special members' content, we tilt it directly towards your preferences, and it will also let you get content more often. So, if you like what we do, check it out, patreon.com slash lapsuslima. And welcome to this Valentine's Day episode. We're recording this on February 14th, but for Many of you, it will be coming out the Monday after and whenever the rest of you may get to it. Our next installment on Walter Benjamin is going to be not two weeks from now, but next week. So we are having this as a, an extra installment between. We also wanted to change pace a little bit and look at the scope of things that we have covered and give all of you a preview of what we might be going into next. Of course, recently we had our anniversary episode, and looking back at our feed with 31 episodes, stemming from Louis Sullivan in the 1890s, going through Adolf Loos, Henry Vandevelde, Mutasius, through a whole lot of detail in the Bauhaus. We really appreciate listener feedback on that. People loved those Kandinsky episodes, we actually got into our discussion of philosophical dualism because of listener requests, and that was honestly one of the most fun to research and produce. I have to congratulate the listeners who encouraged me to do that because my master's thesis was on how dualism, and specifically Leibniz, how the metaphysics of that impacts how one makes architecture and how one's fundamental beliefs about the world will change what you do what you think is possible, how you behave, how you perceive buildings, and how you make buildings. I was very happy that upon re-examining that, I found that I had uh, either an incomplete or an incorrect view about the pre-established harmony. Uh, if you want to check that out, that's in the Kandinsky episodes. This is the kind of thing that happens when we're able to have a good interaction between uh, listeners and producers here. It's this kind of re-examination of fundamental beliefs and ideas, and really being able to challenge things that we truly enjoy and appreciate coming from our devoted listeners. Up until this point, we've kept it mostly chronological. We stepped back to handle Frank Lloyd Wright with uh, his reflections on the age of the machine, 
This was mostly because we felt that his ideas, which had not been picked up in Europe, were very much relevant as a counterbalance to the emergence of the machine ideology that was becoming ever more influential in what was later to be called the international style. And again, that's something that if you want to tell us what your preference is, we'd like to hear from you because going chronologically is what most people do, but again, as Monica has said for us, we're not most people. We've generally been going chronologically, but as we get more into the ideas, you start to relate the ideas to themselves instead of events in consecutive order. Sometimes it's going to make more sense to structure things like the one, two, three, four, five entries in a book, and sometimes it's going to make more sense to link to ideas as if it is a set of web pages. Another reason for setting chronology aside for the moment is that in the wake of releasing our first episode on Walter Benjamin, we got some listener feedback where we were really encouraged to look into the big conflicts over ideology between the wars in Europe. So uh, in the 1920s and 30s, it was an absolute you know, hotbed of fascism versus socialism versus Bolshevism. And if you just set your scope to only the Bauhaus, you can see directly how that played out. We fully intend to cover a number of aspects of this struggle. In the near future, we're going to be going into suprematism. That is the Russian abstract movement. Kashmir Malevich was primary among the artists involved in that. He was affiliated with Kandinsky during Kandinsky's last years in Russia, and uh, which soon became the early Soviet Union. They clashed on several fronts about art. Kandinsky was certainly less ideological. Uh, he favored more of an emotional component to the art. Of course, uh, he was an expressionist. However, to Kandinsky's credit, there was an incredible synthesis that happened in his art during these years, that the expressionism of earlier times was influenced by this geometric purism, uh, the, I shouldn't say purism, that's something else, but the suprematism, the treatment of shape as such to kind of yearn for something beyond the physical. And in some ways this seems like expressionism. In the 1960s there would be something called abstract expressionism, which was almost like returning home to this synthesis, where especially in sculpture you would have these pure geometric forms which would try to, you know, lift beyond in almost a platonic way to this sense of the eternal. Uh, suprematism had a little bit of an air of that to it. And a lot of it rubbed off on Kandinsky in a very good way, and a lot of the paintings that he is most famous for, a lot of his strongest work, was because this suprematist school pushed and influenced him so much. Uh, eventually their differences were irreconcilable, and part of the reason that he left uh, the Soviet Union was 
this disagreement with the school. But nonetheless, uh, it was something that had a positive impact on his art. I hope all of you are looking forward to hearing about suprematism. If any of you are particular fans of it and want to hear something specific, email us, let us know. Now, of course, Frank Lloyd Wright is something that we said we would return to, and architecturally, that man is a universe unto himself. We could spend an entire podcast, really, going over his work. I think you could make three podcasts, because you have his early work, exemplified in the Prairie Houses, uh, the Roby House in particular. Then you have his middle period with the Los Angeles Houses, the tactile block system, as well as the Imperial Hotel. This was a time in his life when he was under the most financial pressure. It's not the most critically or historically praised, but uh, I, I personally think it is incredibly brilliant and wonderful stuff. Often the later part of his career gets some of the highest praise, including Guggenheim. But I tend to prefer his middle work, even though it doesn't get paid as much attention as the early phase or the late phase. The late phase really begins with the Falling Water House in Pennsylvania, and subsequently the S.C. Johnson Wax Building. During this time, Wright was really struggling with the new architects such as Corbusier coming to the fore, and really eclipsing a spotlight that he felt he deserved. And so he wanted to maintain his originality, yet also cater to this new kind of spotlight. And you can see that in the shift in his work. You have more smooth surfaces, you have more regularized geometry. The exemplars of this in his work are things like the Marin County Civic Center, as well as the Guggenheim. You have the sense of continuity and flow that Corbusier expressed in the Villa Savoie, where you have extensive use of ramps. The human foot traffic as flowing is something that informs a lot of the shape of the building. And then, of course, what does Frank Lloyd Wright do? He says, oh, well, I'm Frank Lloyd Wright. I am going to do that, but uh, I am going to do that much better than they ever did. And in his opinion, he, he did. I personally do not think that it's the best work of his career, but it is truly uh, astounding output. And so, those three phases. You have his early career, uh, especially with the Prairie Houses, middle career, Imperial Hotel, tactile blocks, and then the late phase, uh, starting with Falling Water, Certainly, this is something that we are going to touch on in some way. If you enjoyed how we covered Frank Lloyd Wright, if you think there are things that we're missing, if even in this preview you think that there is something that you thought is unconscionable for us to not mention, let me know, and we'll be sure to toss that in on Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, in terms of beyond the scope of what we have covered, several of our listeners have pointed out that it really feels like we're building up to things. Guess what, folks? That's true. Guilty as charged, we absolutely are. To get a hint of what that's about, go to our website, browse our archive. There you will find a few text articles we 
had lapsuslima.com set up as a weblog before we started doing the podcast. There you will see some articles on architectural theory from the 70s, as well as computer design from the 1960s, and uh, one crossover article, which is really just my ideas, uh, called Your Website Here. It's got a picture of the IBM building for purely symbolic reasons. But those other articles are more historically based. The end of the 20th century suffered from what a lot of people called theory fatigue. And this really set in with critical theory bumping up against deconstruction, and you had Derrida, you had Deleuze, you had people going on about Adorno and Horkheimer, architecture professors who still hold forth about Althusser. Some of this is worthwhile, but in addition to a real focus on flash and dazzle with these so-called starchitects, there was also a real return to performance in buildings. Um, this formal innovation was matched by a somewhat equal interest, if a little bit later on, in performance, which played out in terms of sustainability or social factors. Behind a lot of this was the new capacity of digital design. Early on in the 80s, uh, you had CAD-based drafting, which of course took a while to work its way all the way through the industry. And then uh, more recently than that, you had the parametric software. For those not familiar with parametrics, when you have a computer drafting model and you want to set certain standards, for example, uh, there's uh, certain zoning restrictions or engineering restrictions that you need to program in. You have a list of variables, and you want to make sure that no matter what else happens with your design, those variables are met. That's the basic idea. Interestingly enough, just as some people were talking about the death of theory because this new software, especially parametrics, was coming in where it was just all about performance and there was no theory, it made you wonder, hold on, take a step back, there's always a theory of something. You're always operating under some kind of theory, some one's theory, some thing's theory, even if it's not identified. My position is, if it's not identified and you're not aware of it, you are giving up control. Something else is making the decisions for you. You're not being fully aware. So with a software and with this parametrics, there are value implications. Uh, there are systemic decisions, which are inherent in how someone sets this up. People are making decisions for certain reasons. And so because this system is then automated and kind of supercharged, well, theory would become even more important, wouldn't it? But then again, it would have to be a different kind of theory. The exact theory for this type of software was worked out in the middle 1960s. There was a book by Christopher Alexander 
called Notes on the Synthesis of Form. Now, this man is someone that I have studied quite extensively. He's most noted for pattern language. I feel that his strongest theoretical work is something called The Nature of Order. All of these things we intend to get to in the podcast, believe me. Notes on the Synthesis of Form, however, is a great place to start. And we intend to get to that as soon as we get to the 1960s. That's about what you call cybernetics, the workings of a system, of variables of control and influence. In short, this book from the 1960s showed us that when really looked at in a frank manner, parametric design becomes enormously complicated even for something as simple as a tea kettle. Therefore, while the tools might be useful, the entire book, by setting up this system which shows that analysis of parameters creates such incredible levels of mathematical complexity, it begs the question, isn't there a better way? And this is where we get to morphology, to systems of emergence specifically, then, emergent morphology. That, ladies and gentlemen, believe it or not, is where one gets to things like redefining the nature of life itself. That's where our podcast is headed. We hope you'll enjoy coming along with us. Of course, with the new Patreon website, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash lapsus lima you're going to be able to tell us what you want to hear and get your own personalized content so check that out don't miss out on it and thank you guys so much for listening to us it really is you that make this podcast possible through your support telling other people who might be interested through your feedback and again Thank you so much. We're going to be back in one week with Walter Benjamin Part 2. Thanks for listening.